We're in Genesis chapter 4. If you turn there, the way of Cain is the message. Just to give you a heads up, if you hold a place in Hebrews 11 and 1 John 3, you'll be ahead and you'll be ready to turn there when we go there. Genesis 4, Hebrews 11, 1 John 3. Those would be the main places that you're going to need to navigate the way of Cain. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we look at our world this morning, we know that uh, in many ways it's a hurting place. Trouble in the Middle East, all kinds of questions going on, all kinds of diplomatic solutions looking for and searching out and different opinions. And then, Lord, we, we look at our world and we know that there's just a lot going on, a lot of empty, broken people And uh, as we look at the story of Cain and Abel, the first murder in the Bible, we see that Cain chose a path, a way, the way of Cain. And it was the wrong way. And all of us have a choice. We can choose the way of Cain or the way of Christ. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one is going to come to the Father except through you. Those are your words, Lord. Help us to find that right path. Even if we've messed up and made huge mistakes, there's hope. And there's going to be hope in this story, but there's also tragedy in this story. And it's so fitting for our world in light of just recent events. So what we ask, Lord, is that you'll give us ears to hear what your spirit says to the church. Help us to look at our own hearts. Let the searchlight of your word search us. David said, search my heart, O God. Know my anxious thoughts. If there's any wicked way in me, anything evil, lead me in the everlasting way. Lord, we are here to hear from you. And so speak to us. Your servants are listening. And help us to act upon your word in a way that would bring you glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. After the events that happened in the Pacific Northwest in Oregon, another, yet another brutal shooting in America Eight students dead, a teacher dead. Latest statistics, I think, are 20 wounded. I jumped on Fox News a couple days back, and the headlines read, filled with hate. And a young man, 26-year-old man, uh, apparently enrolled at the college, goes into a writing class with a question. He has disdain for organized religion, we're told, And his question is simply this, are you a Christian? And if you say you are, he shoots you in the head. And witnesses say, if you say you're not, you get shot in the leg. Uh, I also have heard reports, and I can't confirm all of this, but since nine people died, some people apparently said, yes, I'm a Christian. But what would you do if you were the seventh one in that line? and six before you had died for answering in the affirmative. That's our world. And we begin to ask questions, and we need to, about what's at the heart of this? What is the reason that someone would go into a school? And, you know, I I started looking at statistics, and you can go back and forth on statistics, but one government official confirmed by a story in a major newspaper said that since the shootings in Connecticut, you may have forgotten, but let me remind you, 20 little kids were shot in December 2012 at an elementary school, plus I think six more teachers. That young man went, went in and killed little kindergartners right around Christmas time. 
And now, you know, you turn on the news and you see all the pundits, all the so-called experts uh, telling us what's wrong with America. And the answers are, we need more gun control. The answers are, there's a lot of mentally unstable people in the world, and that's why people kill each other. But did you know that in Genesis 4, just as it seems like the Lord always does when we're in a section, the answers will come. And what I don't hear in our culture a lot is things like this. Maybe the root of this problem is sin. Maybe the root of this problem is Satan. No, we're too enlightened for that kind of stuff. Yeah, we've come so far. In fact, one of the statistics I read, and I'm not sure if this is borne out, but even if it's close, is that since the Connecticut shooting, there have been 142 school shootings since December 2012. Now, I did a cross-check on that, and somebody said, well, that's every instance where someone had a gun somewhere, even if it went off accidentally, or they had a gun in their car, or something like that. But even if it's a quarter of that, and I read another statistic that it's about 33 school shootings since 2012, and you can go ahead and check that. Even if it's close, you have to begin asking questions. Like, what in the world is going on in America? What would cause an individual to have so much hate and what you don't hear in some of the speeches that are coming forth, you hear gun control and that kind of thing, but do you know that it appears that nine Christians were killed because they had faith in Christ? You have to begin asking questions because it's happening all over the world. It's happening right here in the United States. This is not Iran. This is not Syria. This is Oregon, Where are we? What are the pundits actually giving us to give us answers to the real questions? Well, we went back to the beginning because, frankly, in prayer, I felt like the Lord said, this is where we need to go. We need to go back to the genesis of everything, the origins, and find out the answers. And we found out things like, we know who the creator is, it's God. He made the sun, moon, and stars. He made all the animals. He made the fish, and he made the people. And those are big answers, amen? Those are answers of origins. But we've also found out something else. We are going back to the beginning. Genesis means beginning or origin. And we're seeing other things, like we saw the beginning of the fall. We saw the fall. Adam and Eve fall. We saw the beginning of blame shifting. The woman you gave me, she told me to eat. And the woman blamed the serpent. But then we see the graciousness of God, the seeker of the lost. He comes into the garden and he takes the skins of animals, implying he killed animals, and he clothes our first parents. He covers them. And early pictures of the gospel begin to emerge the Evangelian uh, scholars call it, the, the serpent will bruise the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah will bruise or crush his head. And we see hope. And our first parents are covered by the death of an animal, cloaked and covered by the hands of Almighty God. But then they are forced out of the garden, and out they go. And now we move into Genesis 4, and we see here in Genesis 4, Homicide is the centerpiece. I'm quoting from R. Kent Hughes. This is far more than the record of the first murder, though. This is about the way of Cain. The corruption and slide of a heart away from God into notorious sin. We will even find here, 
And I would encourage you all to be listening closely in this text, how to avoid relational disasters. So be ready to take some notes because I think you're going to find that there's some stuff in here about how to make our relationships work and how to avoid sin. One note, in verses 1 through 17 in Genesis 4, you'll find the name Abel uh, seven times, the name brother or the word brother seven times, and the name Cain 14 times, which is really interesting. There's that number seven begins repeating over and over again. And the Bible narrative begins this way. Now, Genesis 4.1, the man, that is Adam, had relations, the Hebrew word is yada, it means to know his wife. He had relations with his wife. This is what God told them to do. Be fruitful and multiply. You will become one in the blessing of marriage. This is God's idea. God blesses it. And so they did. They came together and she conceived. She was pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I've gotten a man-child. I like Eve already. I got a man-child. Yeah. It's pretty cool. The word man-child is actually the Hebrew word ish. I've given birth to a man. And there's some surprise, I think, here. But she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It's almost like Eve is saying, God made man, and now, with God's help, I made a man. Isn't that cool? Imagine what that must have been like for Adam and Eve, the first birth of a baby. The first realization of this incredible process of a covenant of a man and a woman coming together, pregnancy, the skillful uh, creation of God Almighty in the womb, and then the birth of a child. And she would have that pain. Uh, God promised her her pain would increase in childbirth, and she would experience the pain, but then she would give birth to a son. His name is called Cain. What's the origin of his name? Well, it could come from Cana, which is the word for gotten. I have gotten a man-child or acquired a man from the Lord. That's Cana. It could also mean possession. So his name may just simply mean I've acquired. I got Cain from God, so his name is gotten or uh, possession with the help of the Lord. And again, she gave birth, verse 2, to his brother Abel, Again, some think that that implies maybe there's twins here, back-to-back births. We don't know for sure. Or it could be, be that, again, just means the process of verse one happened again. They were intimate. She conceived. And again, the Bible is just telling us highlights here. She gave birth to his brother, Abel. His name in Hebrew is Havel or Hebel. And literally, if you look up the word in the Hebrew dictionary, the word Abel or the name Abel means breath. However, the word havel is used 38 times in Ecclesiastes, and the word breath is the idea of vanity. In fact, early in that book, Solomon says vanity of vanities, and that word can mean emptiness. It can mean that which is uh, hard to understand, but the basic definition of havel, H-E-V-E-L in English, really means short-lived. Life is a breath. It's a vapor. Uh, We're here today, gone tomorrow. Could Adam and Eve have known how appropriate that name was for Abel? Maybe they were thinking breath would be appropriate because God breathes into us life, but the wider definition of Hevel or Abel is short-lived, and that's what his life was. His life was cut short, sadly, by his brother. So it came about in the course of time, Genesis 4-3, 
Uh, probably at a marked time that God had given them for sacrifice or at the end of an agricultural year. It came about in the course of time. So much time has gone by now. They're two adults. They're learning to worship God. That Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now you'll notice in verse two that Abel was a keeper of the flocks. He was a shepherd. He watched over flocks. He protected and uh, took care of but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Like many firstborn, he followed in the footsteps of dad. Dad was to till the ground, and he it was going to now produce weeds and that kind of thing. And so Cain naturally follows in the footsteps of dad. He's a farmer, and Abel is a shepherd. So Cain does a very natural thing. He takes from that which he sows to. He is a tiller of the ground, literally in Obed Adama. He is a servant of the ground, and he brings a fruit offering or a grain offering or from his crops. That's very natural. And in fact, the Old Testament would acknowledge that offerings of animals and offerings of fruit or grain are both acceptable to God. We're to bring the first fruits, and maybe that's what he did. It doesn't say specifically, but he brought an offering to the Lord. An offering is an act of worship. And so he brings something to God. God commanded this, and he did it. And Abel also, notice on his part also, brought of the firstlings of his flock. He took from what he did, he was a shepherd, and he took the firstborn of his flock, very appropriate, and their fat portions, highly treasured by God in the Old Testament. Sweet-smelling aroma would come up to God from these portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. I want you to note that it's going to say that God had regard for Abel as a person and for what he brought. He looked favorably upon Abel's offering. But you'll notice in verse five, but for Cain and for his offering. So notice there's a differentiation between the person and the offering, but they kind of go together. For Cain and his offering, the Lord had no regard. He did not look with favor upon Cain's offering as he did upon Abel's. Now, if you read on this, you're gonna read all kinds of stuff about whether or not God had instituted animal offerings and that's what he really wanted. And so that maybe Cain failed in that he didn't bring an animal offering because his, first, his parents would have learned that blood sacrifice happened in Genesis 3 and maybe that's what God wanted and the failure was he brought fruit instead of an animal. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't tell us the problem is with the material offering of Cain. There's something deeper going on here. There's, there's a silence in the Genesis text about the heart of the problem and maybe that's the most important thing. In fact, one writer says, perhaps the silence is the message itself. Perhaps the fault is an internal one, an attribute that is known only to God. We will see later that this is precisely what the New Testament interpretation of this event is. The real issue with Cain is a matter of the heart. It's an internal issue. He didn't bring it by faith he didn't really believe in God. He mailed it in. He wrote the check. He brought the offering. He looked religious, but something was amiss in Cain's life. Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are what? What God cares about is the heart. He says, on the day that you fast, Isaiah 58, you're fighting with your brother. What good is your fasting if you're at odds with your brother? And at some points in the Old Testament, he says to Israel, I'm sick of your festivals. I'm sick of your offerings. Don't even bring them anymore. And you might say, well, whoa, God, hold on a minute. You're the one that prescribed them. 
Why would you tell us not to bring them anymore? Because God says they don't mean anything anymore. All they are is simply a religious thing that you do. I don't have your heart, so I don't care about your offering. And Cain may be the first picture of a person who does exactly this. Now, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 11, and that's where I hope you've held a place, Hebrews 11, gives us a little bit more insight. He's giving us the great hall of faith, and he's gonna go through all these characters of the Bible. He's gonna start off in Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. He says, now faith, Hebrews 11, is the assurance, verse one, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the context is faith, men of old, what did they do? They gained approval. Skip down to verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, speaking of his sacrifice here, and through faith, though he is dead, he what? He still speaks. So what happened, if you flip back to Genesis 4, is there was a lack of faith on Cain's part, but faith in Abel's part. And I don't think it's the offering necessarily that's the issue, it's the heart. It's coming to God by faith. How do you please God? It's you believe him. You have a relationship with him by faith. And so the two brothers bring the offerings instructed by God. Augustine uh, says the heart of the matter is this. Cain was the firstborn and he belonged to the city of men. Abel, who was born after, belonged to the city of God. Sacrifice is acceptable to God not for its material content, but so far as it is the outward expression of a devoted and obedient heart. You can write a check all day long You can show up to a building all day long, but that doesn't really show your heart. What shows your heart is your attitude of worship and what you do. And so Cain, there was no regard for his offering. Genesis 4, verse 5, God did not look favorably upon it, and Cain's reaction was, so Cain, Genesis 4, 5, became very angry, and his face or his countenance fell. I almost picture a little kid, you know, how they can be so happy. Daddy, 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 can we do this? No. I mean, it's such a quick change from bling to bling. And that's what Cain did. His face fell. He became angry. He was confronted with the reality that his offering was not what God wanted. And instead of looking inward, what did he do? He became angry, like a lot of us do. We can become like little kids. What do you mean my offering's not good enough? What? Well, God has a reason. He's not just, you know, rejecting Cain because uh, of the material offering. I'm sure he prescribed things, but I don't think that's it. I think there's something else going on here. And God is trying to get Cain to look at his heart. The Lord said to Cain, why? Are you angry, verse six, and note it twice, why has your face or your countenance fallen? Why are you angry? I remember listening to some parenting advice years ago when my kids were small, and they said if a kid ever does something to a sibling and something bad has happened, you should begin to ask them questions like this. What's going on in your heart that you would do that? Why would you act that way? And try to get them to look within because we're so good at making excuses and and so good at deflecting blame. So God's questions are remedial. 
He's saying, why? Look a little deeper. Why are you mad? Why has your face or your countenance fallen? Take a look. God's questions are searching ones to get him to look at himself. God says, if you do well, God provides a solution. Will not your countenance be lifted up? Verse seven. And if you do not do well, here's the problem. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire, same Hebrew word as 316, we talked about marriage, is for you, but you must master it. Sin wants to dominate you, but you must master it. And if you do well, and now we begin to see the problem with Cain, Cain's problem is a sin problem. He's a prideful man. In fact, rabbinic scholars, Jewish scholars used to say that Cain was a picture of a man who didn't really think about consequences. He was a, more a material man. He didn't think about spiritual things. And God says, look, if you turn things around, there's a solution. Your face will change. Do you know that it's quite possible just from this text that a lot of people that walk around with a sour face, sometimes we call it a sour puss, it may be because they're in habits of sin. Some people's faces are just frozen in a frown. And you're like, could, could you smile? <laughs> Hello. It's not all that bad, is it? I don't know. Maybe we're getting a little bit more insight about how life works, how the face begins to reflect the life and what people go through. I'm not saying that you can't have sadness on your face, but I'm saying if that becomes the permanent situation and God says, look, if you want to change things, if you do well, if you improve, your face will change. How about that? Now, today, we can't say that. Now, today, in college campuses, we were having a discussion at the men's breakfast yesterday. Joe Kelly talking to us about apologetics and stuff like that. And my son was asked the question, is this true of your generation that we've become soft and all that? And he said, yeah. In fact, I just read an article that on college campuses, they now have safe rooms. If something happens in the school, a debate of ideas, and you become uncomfortable, you can go to your safe place. It's a padded room where you won't hurt yourself. I'm not joking, folks. I don't know if it's padded, but... <laughs> But these rooms exist. And it's if you're uncomfortable with, with people being, you know, having different ideas and the argument just goes in a direction that makes you uncomfortable, go to your safe place. We're a bunch of sissies, man. <laughs> we have become soft. We are catering to this stuff. I, 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 I just look at it and I'm, I don't even know how to respond to it. But only to say, I look at my Bible and God says to Cain, if you want to change your life, do better. Hello? That seems pretty like common sense. You want to get better grades? Study more. You want to lose weight? Don't eat as many cupcakes. But I saw that late night thing that makes you get the six pack with them. No. It doesn't work. You want to get stronger? Work out. You want to be more spiritual? Read your Bible. You don't want sin to dominate you anymore? Change what you do. Personal responsibility is in the Bible. And God says, if you change things, if you do well, look, this is a real option from real truth. It can really happen. Adam and Eve had a real choice, and so did Cain. He could choose to do better. And God gives him a picture. He says, sin is the issue, and sin is crouching at the door. 
Now, sin, when it shows up at your door, it, it crouches. It doesn't stand up so you can look through your little peep thing. <laughs> Who is it? Sin. <laughs> sin. Would you let me in? <laughs> no. Sin crouches. It doesn't let you look at it through the peephole. It's sneaky. Well, you might say, well, is sin some thing out there? I mean, it's pictured as this weird kind of beast crouching thing that's ready to pounce on you. What, what is sin? Is it something that lurks out there? No, no. Sin is in us. The issue is the anger that Cain is dealing with, his pride, that he won't look at himself. The, the lion at the door is in him. He must deal with sin. He must kill it. He must crucify his flesh. It's not something out there. Paul says in Romans 6 and 7, sin is in me. There's nothing good in my flesh. I must crucify my flesh. And sin is pictured as this thing at the door. How many of you remember the old Saturday Night Live uh, episodes with the shark? Was it Chevy Chase? I'm not advocating Saturday Night Live, but, but this was funny. He was a shark at the, at the time the Jaws movies were coming out, and he would be at the door. No, 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 no. And he would knock and he would say, postman, <laughs> delivery. And the girl always ended up opening the door and he just ate her. And you're watching the skit and you're saying, don't open the door, it's the shark. Sin, postman. This is what happens. Sin is sneaky. It's at your door, which should be an insight. It means the only way it's going to come in is if you, you can master it. You know how? Don't open the door. Don't open it. Oh, that sounds way too simple. But it's true. If you open the door, it will come in and master you. You must master it. And the good news for Christians is we have the power of the Holy Spirit. But we all know, too many times, the doorbell's rung, and we're not quite convinced, even though we don't see anything through the people. Maybe. And we get in trouble. And Cain does not realize how serious this moment is. God is telling him there's a remedy for what you're about to do. You've got to deal with your unresolved anger. If you don't deal with it, it is going to dominate you, and you're going to do something you're going to regret for the rest of your life. Turn to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. Paul's been talking about putting on the new man, and uh, he sets the table for it in verses 22 through 24 in Ephesians 4. I won't read it for you now, but he's saying Christians got to put on the new self. It's something we've got to do even though we're saved. And then he says, these words. He says, Ephesians 4.26, be angry and yet do not sin. Solution, don't let the sun go down on your anger. The Jewish day began at, at sunset. The Bible's not saying you gotta resolve everything before the sun goes down, but the Bible's saying before the day's over, you need to deal with stuff. Deal with unresolved anger. Try to remedy it, and maybe most of it has to do with you. Not so much somebody else. You've got to deal with your own heart. 
Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's not always about the other person. It's about you. And don't, verse 27, what does it say? Do not give what? The devil an opportunity. You see, this is his playground, you guys. He says later in the chapter, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, verse 30, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, Ephesians 4.31, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you along with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ forgave you. This is the issue. Go to 1 John chapter 3. I hope you held a spot there. 1 John chapter 3, all the way towards Revelation. Here's what our Bible tells us. 1 John 3, look at verse 11. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another, 1 John 3, 12. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. For what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Look at verse 14. We know, 1 John 3, 14, that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We love God's people. He who does not love abides in death. Look at 1 John 4, verse 20. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Go back to Genesis chapter four. And we look at Cain, and we say, how sad, until we realize that Jesus said, if you hate somebody without a cause, you are a murderer. And the law goes much deeper than just outward actions. It says, look at you. Let the Bible read you. Where are you at? Have you murdered someone's reputation with gossip? Have you hated somebody without a cause? Can you look at another Christian whom you're supposed to love and have hate in your heart? John tells us, take a look at your heart. These stories are not for you to sit in the stands and say, gee golly, isn't that sad? No, they're they're intended for us to learn life lessons so that we might not repeat the mistakes that they made. That's why they're there. So that we don't have 30-something shootings since 2012. So that we become a city set upon a hill. So that we have a revival in the church. So that we stop the darkness and the nonsense. That's the power of the Bible. Not always comfortable. Not always convenient. But the truth will set you free. Free. That's what God wants. We've got to look at some things in order to get better. And so God confronts Cain. And Cain, Genesis 4.8, told his brother. The word told is Amar, it could mean that he went looking for his brother. I don't know if this means he had a conversation like God didn't look favorably on my offering, but he accepted yours, or if it simply means he went on the lookout for his brother, that seems to make more sense. Cain told, or perhaps he looked for his brother Abel, and it came about that when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. Notice in verse eight, brother is there twice for a reason. That's his brother. And he rose up against his brother. There's no guns in this day. He can't be you know, detached from his killing of his brother. In fact, and I know there's modern versions of that he took a shovel or whatever, 
But we don't know. He may have killed him with his own bare hands. He may have drained the life out of his brother. Why? Where was his hate? Because his hate was taken out on the only one that he could take it out on besides God. But who was he really mad at? God. You know, when persecution happens of Christians, it's, it's, why do you think that guy killed eight Christians, or apparently Christians? Why does it happen all over the world? Because it's hatred for God, and it's against his people. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, says Jesus to Saul. And by the way, Saul tells us there's hope because he killed people, and yet he experienced forgiveness. But here's the sad scene captured in an ancient painting where Cain is turned towards the looker in a painting with his eyes like saucers in terror as his brother's lifeless body lays there. And the blood of his brother is crying out and, and Cain is trying to cover his ears so he doesn't have to hear it. All of a sudden, his anger did get the best of him. Sin was crouching at the door. He opened the door, he acted upon it, and now his brother is dead. And the Lord said to Cain, verse 9, where is Abel, your brother? God knows what's going on. But again, the question that he might respond in repentance. And he said, I don't know. And am I my brother's keeper? Whoa. First he lies. He knows where his brother is. He may have buried him at this point. But his blood's still crying out to God. And then he says, am I supposed to keep track of that kid? Am I his keeper? This is a play on words, by the way, in Hebrew. He Abel was a keeper of the flock, Shamar. He watched over flocks. And Cain says, am I supposed to be a shepherd to that kid? And the answer is yes. You're supposed to protect your brother. He's your little brother. Where is he? I don't know. It's not my job to protect him. Wow, this guy is gone. He's moved so far away from God. And God, now from Attorney, interrogator to judge. God says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Wow. You know, I don't know how far to push this text, but there's a reference in Job to blood crying, but whether this is just a, a picturesque way of saying the victim of a, a crime who's killed in this way, intentionally murdered, cries out to Almighty God, or whether their blood, life is in the blood, literally cries out, I can't say for sure. But I'll tell you this. The Bible's telling us that every time someone's life is taken by the hand of a murderer, their blood cries to God. And I want you to think for a moment of how many abortions have happened in this country. And can you imagine, whatever this all means, what it must sound like in heaven... When the, when the cries of innocent victims go up one after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. Now, one thing we do know is God knows and he cares. And he says, I know what you've done. Von Rod, Old Testament commentator, says, according to the Old Testament view, blood and life belong to God alone. Whenever a man commits murder, he attacks God's very own right of possession. To destroy life goes beyond man's proper sphere. Spilled blood cannot be shoveled underground. It cries aloud to heaven and complains directly to the Lord of life. Close quote. Bonhoeffer, hung by the Nazis by a piano wire, 
two weeks before the Allied forces got there to rescue those in concentration camps, said, why does Cain murder? Asked Bonhoeffer rhetorically. Out of hatred for God, man is made in God's image. Abel was acceptable to God and Cain must get rid of him. But he can't cover his crime. He could put as much dirt on the body as he wants to, but God knows. And he says, now you are cursed from the ground. I warned you. Look at Genesis 4.11, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground in the place that you are called, your vocation, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. What you used to be good at, what you used to be successful at is gone. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer. The word wanderer is transliterated into English as nod, N-A-D. You'll be a wanderer on the earth. You're going to have now a tragic life. Perhaps your life will be worse than death. You're going to wander around. You're going to leave everything you know, mom and dad, your profession, and you'll just wander around. That's your punishment. And Cain said to the Lord, I really feel bad about killing my brother. Can we sit down and talk about this? No. Cain says, my punishment is too great to bear. No repentance, no remorse, no concern about what he did for it to Abel, no concern about what this means to his mom and dad, nothing. My punishment, it's more than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me this day, 14, from the face of the ground, from thy face I shall be hidden, I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. You have marked me for death, and now you're going to cause me to wander around and wait for it. That's Cain's reaction to God's sentence. You might ask the question, who would kill him? Who's around? Well, the Bible is giving us highlights. There, it may well be that many other children have been born since Cain and Abel. Or it may be that he's thinking of future generations. He's going to live an unusually long life. And he's, he may be thinking of a generation that will be born. They will hear this story and they will seek to avenge the blood of Abel. And it will be a family member that does that. And isn't it ironic? A family member might be the one that avenges the blood of a family member killing another family member. Wow. Whichever it is, you know, some people say, where did Cain get his wife? Well, Cain's wife came from Adam and Eve. Yes, siblings did marry early on. That's the way it had to be. There were only two humans. And in the law later is, is told you cannot have relationships that way, but early on in the Bible, that's how it happened. That's how the generations expanded upon the earth. And when God tells Cain his judgment, Cain falls to pieces no compassion, only self-pity, only fear for his own future. So the Lord said to him, 15, we're almost done. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. I'm going to make you a promise. There's going to be grace in the midst of your consequences. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, 16, and settled, keyword, in the land of Nod. A play on words, the word wanderer is Nod, and he, and he settles in the land of Nod. He settles in the land of wandering. I, I just want to ask you a question. Have you settled? Have you wandered away from the Lord? I wonder how many people today have had an experience with God, and they are now in the land of wandering, and they've settled there. That's where you are. Those are, that's the way of Cain. 
settling, self-focused. But God puts a mark on him, and we'll end with this as we prepare our hearts for communion. Whoever kills Cain, God marks him, vengeance will be taken on him. And the Lord, 15, appointed a sign. If you want to just quickly translate that into English, the word sign is O-T, or it's O-W-T-H, it's oat. Now here's what is just remarkable about this. There's all kinds of conjecture about what was the sign? Was it something physical on Cain? Was it some sort of warning that went out? Was it a mark that he had? Well, the word for sign is oat. And get this. Um, this is in the old script. We don't know for sure what the sign was, but sign oat in the old Hebrew picture language, the first thing that Moses would have written, means the strong established sign, or get this, the beginning and the end. It's the Aleph, the first letter of the Hebrew uh, alphabet, picture of an ox head, strong leader. It's a vav for the word and. It's the picture of a nail. So you got the leader, a nail, and the last letter is a tav. The last letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the ancient script, it looks like a cross. And the mark that may have marked Cain was the sign that the leader would be nailed to the cross. In fact, in Ezekiel 9.4, many ancient exegetes along with Genesis 4 believe that the sign that marked Cain may have been just that. Could it be that Cain went around with a cross on his forehead? I don't know for sure. But it would be just like God to say that even in the midst of this tragedy, there is a coming redeemer who will shed his blood for all the innocent blood that we have shed. Who will say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And his blood will be shed for the sins of Cain and others. And the question, it must ring in our souls. Did Cain repent? The answer is, I don't know. But the New Testament writers don't speak kindly of Cain. And it sounds like maybe he did not. Now, what I'd like you to do is turn to Hebrews 12. And uh, I'm going to ask if the ushers can hear my voice. We're going to start to pass communion elements. So prepare your hearts for that. I want to tell you that if you're a Christian, you are invited to the Lord's table. But it's always good to do some business with the Lord before you take the Lord's Supper. To do some heart examination. That's a really important thing. And if you're not a believer, then there's no reason for you to take this, these communion elements. But if you're not a believer and you want to become one, may I encourage you to run to the foot of the cross and get saved. Jesus died for all of the junk. Think about, and I know it's not the most pleasant thought, think about all the sin that's represented in this room. <laughs> I just think about myself and all I've been forgiven of, and I've, I've been forgiven of a lot things that I've done, things that I've thought, things that I've failed to do, my motivations, all of that he dealt with at the cross. That's why we come to this table, to remember his righteous blood shed for us. But if you don't know him, you're gonna face God without that cleansing, without that covering. So get to know him. You say, well, how do you do it, Pastor Mike? You just, you just receive him. You just say, Lord, I'm sorry. You do what Cain failed to do. You take ownership. You say, I've sinned against you. 
But I believe you died on that cross for me, and I believe you rose from the dead, and I'm gonna trust what you did because you so loved me that you gave your son. And I'm gonna believe on him for my salvation and trust in him. And the Bible says salvation is a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. You must receive it by faith. So would you bow your heart with me? Father, for those who don't know you, those who may need to come back to the way of Christ and away from the way of Cain, you bless them with a knowledge that you're a God of mercy, a God of grace. You demonstrated that love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't know Jesus with your heart and head bowed, just cry out to him, something like this. And I would encourage you, pray it out loud. Jesus, save me. Pray it right now if it's you. Jesus, save me. I'm sorry for my sin. I turn from it and I turn to you through your son, Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I believe he rose from the dead and I ask, Lord, that you would save me. Change me from the inside out. Forgive me and make me your child. Lord, for those who are crying out to you, for believers who may be crying out, for anybody who's doing any business with you this morning, may you bless them with the assurance of your grace, your mercy, your love, your loving kindness, which is better than life. And as we come to your table, may we never forget what you've done for us. May we remember the cross of Christ, the way he took for us to deal with our sins. And may we have personal revival, spiritual revival in the church. And may our country, this United States of America, return to you, O Lord. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.